0: Well, welcome to Cross Point Church. My name is Pastor Joshua. And if you have a Bible, go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And um, uh, God bless you this morning. I know that I got a lot of comments because I'm wearing glasses and I shaved my facial hair. So everybody's freaking out. Um, I'm more aerodynamic, though. Um, I'm younger looking, which is always good, because if I'm not any good, then you guys will say, oh, it's okay, he's young, he'll learn, you know. And so uh, that's good, but uh, so that's what's going on. If you're like, why does he look so weird and plastic? Uh, That's because I shaved off my... I'll bring it back, I'll bring back facial hair, geez. Anyways, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, I do want to acknowledge as a pastor... And as a dad, I am just horrified by what happened over the weekend in Connecticut um, at this school where these children were uh, killed um, by this guy. And like you, I've gone through all of the emotions, uh, I've hugged my kids and gotten angry at the dude. And then I get angry as a, as a, as a pastor. And then I, you know, there, you go through so many emotions. And I feel like that we should acknowledge as a church, and just speak to it for at least a moment. And I debated on whether I would just preach on it, but I will say this that we really, you know, some things happen in life, both in our personal lives and in our world, that we just don't have all the answers to. And sometimes we leave. Uh, events uh, in the presence of God and we're satisfied with the mystery and we just surrender and we just weep with those who need to be wept for and we pray and we ask that God would somehow work all things out for good and we believe he will. And uh, while we say that we don't have all of the answers, we do also acknowledge as a church and as believers in this world that we do have some answers for suffering in the world. God is not silent about suffering. He has not stood off at a distance. In fact, this very season represents the fact that God entered the world not because it's so good, but because it's filled with suffering. And in fact, God embraced suffering in his own life by taking on the cross. And so while that doesn't bring uh, particular answers to every experience in our life, it gives us resources to receive comfort from him in times of suffering. And if people should ask you, where is God when it hurts the most? Say, God is well acquainted with grief. The Father knows exactly what it is to lose. He gave his only begotten Son, and he suffered. And we also have hope because Jesus defeated suffering and death and murder. Jesus overcame all of that. And anyone who believes in him will have resources to overcome whatever evil might do. And if you don't believe in Jesus... Our world is so messed up, and he came to save us from it. He is a light in a very dark world. And I almost wanted to preach on Matthew 2, where, you know, a text that we don't preach often as Americans at Christmas time. But when Jesus was born, King Herod, because he could not find King Jesus, decided he would kill all boys at two years old and under in Bethlehem. And so as a result of Jesus entering the world... Children died, innocent children died. And the reason why that's so is because there was no way that God could come and bring us salvation without entering a world and it causing conflict. And so we celebrate Christmas not because uh, of all the great things it can give to us, although that's part of it, but because of the strength it gives us in a world that suffers. And so we pray for them and... uh, and, uh, and we, we lean more into our Savior than ever before when we see events like that happen. And when we come to Isaiah chapter 11, this is a great text, actually. I didn't change the sermon because it actually is very apropos based on the circumstances and the world. But when we come to Isaiah chapter 11, we're coming to the end of a major section in the book of Isaiah. Um, what we've been doing for the last few weeks is we've been studying Isaiah's chapters 6 through 12 in the last several weeks. Scholars call this particular section in the book of Isaiah the book of Emmanuel. Because Isaiah is emphasizing, and in this set, in this section of the book of Isaiah, he is emphasizing the life development and the kingdom development of the King Jesus and the Messiah. So we learned in chapter 7 that we were to look for a sign. A child would be born of a virgin. And his name would be called Emmanuel. And we learned in chapter 9 that for to us a child is born. And so we begin to see Isaiah tell a world with false kings and false scenarios and false nations and all of that, that a king would be coming, a Messiah would come, and you should look for him and you should find him and you should listen to him because he is the real king. But it doesn't stop with the birth. The birth of the king and the Messiah was only the beginning for Isaiah's oracles and prophecy. Only the beginning of the development of this coming kingdom. Ultimately, Isaiah would have a narrative and a prophecy of the life of this Messiah where he would grow up and be king. And he foresaw that this king would come into the world to rule and to reign as the king on earth. And so when we come to chapter 11, we come to the part where Isaiah is emphasizing the the rulership and the reign of Jesus in the world. Imagine this prophecy 700 years or 600 plus years before the birth of Jesus and now thousands of years before the second coming of Jesus. But we come to Isaiah chapter 11 and we come to verse 1 and let's look at it really quick. It says here, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, first of all, we know that this is a metaphor or a word picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the coming Messiah, from Isaiah's perspective, is the stump of And the shoot of Jesse. The name Jesse is the father of David, as in King David. You know, the little guy that beat Goliath, King David, and he grew up and he ruled and he reigned. He's one of the most famous kings in all of Israel's history. And it had been revealed by God to King David of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had told David, From your descendants will come a king who's going to rule on your throne. And so when Isaiah says that a a shoot from the stump of Jesse's coming, he's talking about a person who would be the prophesied king of kings, lord of lords. In fact, he would make David's reign look uh, like a drop in the bucket in comparison. But the question is, why does he refer to this coming king in terms of shoots and stumps and branches and fruit? The word for shoot in the Hebrew literally means a twig. Everybody say twig. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting way to refer to the coming Messiah, isn't it? A little twig is going to come, right? Um, and the picture that he's trying to draw out is that the whole world has been devastated. Imagine that the world, right, were kind of like a, ma- a massive forest full of the biggest trees you can imagine, And what Isaiah has been prophesying is that a day is coming, God's wrath and judgment will wipe out the world to where there's total devastation as a result of sin and rebellion and running from God. And all those once fruitful, massive, big trees that represented the world will be devastated. And Isaiah foresees a time when everything is leveled and and there's no life and there's no greenery or fruit or trees. How many of y'all have had a fire in your house or in your backyard before? Doug, you've had in your house. I know that story, right? When I was growing up, I had a, there was a fire in our backyard and it burned everything. Thankfully, it didn't burn down our house because that would have been a bummer. But it, it burned down the, all that grass. And you know, the stench that just comes. I mean, and it seems like it stays there forever. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like, it, it's just a stench and everything's destroyed. And and the grass is black, and and the garden what was once the garden is, is just lay was laid level by this by this fire, right? But ultimately, little shoots of grass, right? Little green, little twigs, kind of start coming up out of the ground, and you look, and you can still smell the stench, amen. And the world really does stink, doesn't it? The world stinks, and life stinks, and 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 everything is bad. But out of out of this world that stinks would come this one who would be a shoot from the ground, a twig coming up out of the ground. And, and when you've had a burnt yard and you start seeing the, the little green blades of grass popping up, it gives you hope. It tells you, whoa, that means that one day soon, because I'm seeing one blade of green grass, then the rest will be green. Kind of like when Wally finds the little plant. Pixar, anybody? Right? And he's like, no, we can live on earth again because we have the little plant, the little twig. And so when I see in verse 1, Isaiah referring to the Messiah and the coming king as a twig. I see the incarnation. I see the manger and the, the virgin and, the, and Joseph. I see the shepherds coming to worship that little child, that Twig, That blade of grass in a world that's been destroyed. In a world where King Herod kills who knows how many innocent children. In a world of wars and rumor of wars. In a world where relationships are broken. In a world where we're broken from ourselves. Here comes this hope. And while we still can smell the stench after his birth, it, we know that because that little blade came... A whole forest of the kingdom of God is coming. And so when we go to the second part of verse 1, it says, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I see in verse 1 the humiliation of the incarnation and the death of Jesus in that little twig. But then I see the exaltation, the resurrection, the ascension, the glorification of this coming king. Ultimately, that little blade of grass would grow up and die on a cross and he would defeat death. And, and, and the New Testament refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the first fruits. Because everybody who believes in Jesus, even though they die, they too, like Jesus, will come back to life. They too will experience resurrection. Everyone here who believes in Jesus is the fruit of Jesus and will experience the same fruit Of Jesus' resurrection out of the dead. This king will come and bear fruit. But that fruit continues to grow until one day he will come back. And the Bible says he will reign on the earth. He will come back. If you've ever read Revelation chapter 19, which I love. Because it says that Jesus will one day come back on a white horse, right? And he's got a tattoo on his thigh, and it says, King of kings and Lord of lords, amen? It is so all. Every young Christian man loves that text. There's a horse and a sword, and people die, and it's like Braveheart, right? And he comes back, and he's going to judge the nations, and everybody who believes in Jesus will judge all the wicked people. Everybody who's murdered children will be raised again. And they will be destroyed and judged by King Jesus on that day. That's part of the fruit that Isaiah is seeing. The birth of Jesus is merely the beginning, not the end of the prophecy. The birth is just the beginning. Isaiah is saying, it's a sign. The sign is a child born of a virgin. But it's a sign to a greater future where this king will rule and reign And will come back on earth and transform the world as its king. He will establish a theocracy. A theocracy where he will rule on the throne of David. In fact, hold your places there and go to Luke chapter uh, 2. But don't lose Isaiah now. Stick with me. Actually, uh, Luke chapter 1, my bad. Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we hear Gabriel. Gabriel comes to Mary, and, and what Gabriel says to Mary is that the birth is only the beginning of the prophecy. It's not the end. That's very important. If you're going to enjoy Christmas, I heard people say in that little town where that, those children were shot down. And they were interviewed, and I heard them say, we're taking down our Christmas trees. We're not going to exchange gifts. It's too hard. We can't celebrate. It's too difficult. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your whole town taking down all of its lights, not exchanging gifts because the world hurts so much? How can we celebrate Christmas? If all that we celebrate is simply the birth, the birth has to point to something else. And we hear from it, from Gabriel, in Mary's life. And by the way, Jesus coming into Mary's life doesn't make her life any easier, amen? This is not going to go well for her. A little teenage girl in a small town, can you imagine? And she's not married yet, and she's got a baby, can you imagine? How many of y'all are from small towns? Right, you know what happens You know the gossip. Everybody knows everybody else's business. And even after Jesus was born and he became a a teacher, they called him a bastard. Because they knew, they had heard the town's news that that his mama uh, was impregnated before she was officially married to Joseph. And when she said, no, the Holy Spirit conceived and put the baby in me. They were like, sure he did. Now you're just blasphemous. So it's important for her to know that the birth of Jesus was only the beginning of the prophecy, not the the end. Luke chapter 1, Gabriel says in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called not might be, not could be, but he will be called the Son of the Most High. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord one day. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule on this, in this earth on the throne. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary, Jesus is going to be born. And this one that's born, your child, is going to rule the whole world from the throne of David. And that's what, when we come back to Isaiah 11, that's what Isaiah is seeing. He is seeing this child's world after he takes the throne, after he reigns and rules. And what Isaiah chapter 11 tells us about the rule and the reign of Jesus, what I would like to call the day after every day, when he ends this world as it exists now, and then he renews and transforms the world. The day after every normal day, when Jesus finally begins to rule and to reign on that throne, Isaiah tells us how he will rule the world. How he will rule in this kingdom. Isaiah wants us to know what kind of king Jesus will be over all nations, over all peoples. And so the first thing Isaiah tells us about the rulership of King Jesus is that his rule will be by the power of the Holy Spirit or will be a spirit-filled leadership is what Jesus is going to bring. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When it talks about the Spirit in verse 2, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, the second, uh, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit of God is the person of God in creative power. And that Jesus will rule with the permanent indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, that you and I, did you know that when we become Christians, if you're a Christian, are you a Christian today? The moment you became a Christian, the moment you accepted Jesus in your life, you got the permanent feeling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rests in your life. And when Jesus comes back, He's going to rule the whole world by power, Of the Holy Spirit. And we say, well, what does a spirit filled life look like? What does spirit filled leadership look like from King Jesus? And he tells us in three pairs of two. He says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Everybody say wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to make right decisions at the right time. Not only do you know what the right decision is, but you know the right time to make the right decisions. And that kind of timing and decision quality comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he has sovereign rule over everybody and there's no parliament and there's no congress and there's no checks and balances and he is the ruler over our life, he will bring to our world perfect wisdom, right decisions at the right time. Now, some of us, sometimes we know what the right decision is. We just don't know the right timing to make those decisions happen, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I know what the right decision is. It's just I'm either impatient and I go too fast with it or I'm too slow and I don't go slow enough. In fact, the only right decision I made with the right time was when I asked Sherry to marry me because I did it really fast. I said, you got to marry me. And then, like, the next day I took her down to the altar so she couldn't change her mind. Amen? But I'm not typically like that. Because oftentimes, too many times, I'm not spirit-filled. But Jesus, in both his earthly ministry and then in his coming kingdom, when he comes back, he will bring perfect wisdom to all of us because he will have the Holy Spirit leading and ruling through him. He will have the spirit of wisdom, but also understanding. Everybody say understanding. How will Jesus rule as king? He will rule with perfect understanding. Another uh, synonym for this word in the Hebrew is perception. Holy Spirit gives him perception. Which typically is more relational, like people-oriented. Perception into other people's lives. To know how to serve other people in in the right way. Like, I love to serve people, but I often don't know how exactly to serve them. I don't have enough perception. Or sometimes I'm too trusting of other people. How many of y'all are too trusting of other people? And you always assume, oh, no, this guy's good, this guy's good. And then your lack of perception and understanding into that other person leads you into a bad deal or bad relationship. Other times we, we don't trust people that we should trust. We, we don't have enough perception in the people that we should trust with our life. But Jesus has perception. And by the way, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so we can have perception too. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives wisdom and understanding. And man, I long for wisdom and understanding as a dad and as a dude and as a pastor and I need wisdom and understanding, and Jesus will bring it perfectly. But He says that I can experience this kingdom reality in my life today. Not only that, but the spirit of counsel and might. When Jesus rules and reigns and establishes this kingdom, this millennial kingdom, He will rule it and lead it with counsel and might. Counsel, when you think about counsel, you think about uh, knowing what the right goals and results should be. If I go to a counselor, what I'm asking that counselor to do is to give me some goals and some objectives. He's going to give me counsel. Like, you've got to get from point A to point B. And I know exactly where B is. And then you've got to go from B to C. And I know exactly where C is. See, counsel is about knowing what the goals should be, what the results should be. But you see, the Holy Spirit doesn't just tell us what the goals is. He gives us the strength to actually move from point A to B to C. Oftentimes, I know exactly the results that should should come out of my life. I know I should be a patient father, which I'm perfectly patient. (laughs) I know I should be a loving husband or a compassionate pastor or a meek person, or a merciful person, or a forgiving person. I know point A to B. I've got the counsel of Scripture in my heart and in my mind. I've been studying this book long enough to have enough counsel to last me for the rest of my life. That's not the issue. The issue is might, amen. The issue is actually having the strength to do what I know I should. And the Holy Spirit gives that to me. But you see, Jesus will be so full of the Holy Spirit in his rulership, in his reign as king, that everything will be that good. He'll know to tell us what the goal should be, and then he'll know to tell us how we'll have the power and the might to get there. I mean, I can't even imagine that kind of leader in our world. I can't imagine a world with that kind of leadership over everybody. It will be phenomenal. Not only does the Holy Spirit give us wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. The third quality is the Spirit gives Jesus knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And knowledge of God, number one, is it's a word that stands for fellowship and love that produces knowledge. You know, you can learn different things in different ways. You can learn things by reading a book about them. You can go to school and study certain things. But the only way to really know God is in fellowship and love, in relationship. And only the Holy Spirit can give that kind of knowledge of God. God, if he might be compared in sweetness to honey, it's kind of like you can write a book about honey. You can, you can take a test on honey. You can, you can, somebody else can tell you about honey. But you don't know honey until you've put it on your tongue and you've tasted honey. Amen? Amen? And you don't know God. You could go to church your whole life and know all the Bible verses and have them all memorized and know doctrine and theology. But if you don't have fellowship with God by power of the Holy Spirit, you don't know God. You haven't tasted Him yet. The Holy Spirit gives all people in whom he rests the knowledge of the Lord. And the problem with our world is not what it does or doesn't do. The problem with our world is that it has not tasted and known the Lord our God and does not fear God. And therefore, you have a world as a result of the lack of the knowledge of God that produces death and murder and destruction. But you see, Jesus... When he rules and reigns, he will have that knowledge of God in abundance through the Holy Spirit. And he will spread the knowledge of God all over the earth. So that everyone can not only have facts about God, but can have the experience of God in their hearts and their mind. And what we're promised in the, in the New Testament is that you can take a foretaste. You can taste this goodness and knowledge of God even now. Even before the kingdom comes, you can taste the kingdom. You can get a foretaste and experience God by power of the Holy Spirit. I know in Oklahoma, where I come from, there's this place called Brahms. Everybody say Brahms. It's only second place to Chick-fil-A, all right? But it's up there. And it's an ice cream place and burgers and fries. Best ice cream in the world, and it's cheap. Everybody say cheap. I can get my girls a banana split at Brahms for like a buck and a half. It is wonderful. So the whole A team can just have all the ice cream they want at Brahms because it's both good and cheap, a unique combination. But the problem with Brahms is that they've decided to hire all of the incompetent people that they possibly can. (laughs) It's some kind of charity. I don't know. And so what happens is, is Brahms, although it should rule the world and be everywhere in the United States of America, is only found in Oklahoma. And so when we had lived at Boston for many years, my two older girls who were familiar with Brahms and Sherry and I who were familiar with Brahms, and we had to spend $15 for any banana split in Boston, and it wasn't even that good. When we began to come home one time and drive all the way from Boston to Oklahoma, when we were in Missouri, we discovered that Brahms had finally made it across the border. And although we were not home yet, we stopped into Brahms, and we had fellowship there. We had church. And we went into the Brahms, and we all got banana splits, and then we sticky and ice cream everywhere. And although we weren't in heaven yet, Oklahoma City, not really, not really, but go with the illustration, people. We had a taste of it. We had a taste of Brahms before we were in the area where Brahms was. And that's what the Holy Spirit gives to you and me a taste of the knowledge of God, a taste of the kingdom of God, a taste of the rulership and the leadership of Jesus in the world already happening in our life. We are to follow Jesus as king today. We are to hear his call. We are to be a preview of the really big show to come before it comes. That's what the church is. It's a preview of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ I love going to movies and seeing the previews. You know, sometimes the preview is better than the movie. You know what I'm saying? And it's always like real fast and action. Claude Van Damme. That was a really long time ago, but. Right? Or the love scene or the the music. And the, and the people are coming down the, down, down the beach and you just get little pictures of the movie, just little glimpses into what the movie's going to be like. And you're like, man, I can't wait till that movie opens. What day is it opening so I can see that love story? And when it opens on that Friday, with rich anticipation you go to it. Jesus is in our life to make us a preview to the world of the kingdom to come. We are to be the glimpses. The, the, the catch. And, and as Jesus will be fully led. By the Holy Spirit of wisdom. And understanding counsel and might. Knowledge and fear. We too are to be a people led. By wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Understanding counsel. Might knowledge. And the fear of the Lord. We are to be a preview. Of the kingdom to come. And when you. You. You're celebrating this Christmas, and you're thinking about, why do we celebrate this? It's so weird. You know, we get together, and we go, oh, little baby Jesus. And we watch Talladega Nights, and we laugh with him as he pays to the eight-pound, six-ounce Jesus. You know what I mean? Why do we celebrate that? Because he came the first time, and if he fulfilled the beginning of the prophecy, he will fulfill the last part of the prophecy, he will come back. We worship him not only for what he has done on the cross and in the resurrection, but what he will do. He will bring peace to the world, he will bring goodwill, he will bring wisdom to a world that's so unwise. How? Will Jesus rule in the world the day after every day in his kingdom? How will he be king? He will be a spirit-led leader, perfect, and spirit of fullness. But the second thing is not only spirit-filled leadership, but God-delighting justice. Jesus will establish a kingdom and be a king who establishes God-delighting justice. Now look at this with me in verse 3. And His delight, and this is, that delight, by the way, is the result of the Holy Spirit as well. Certainly, it flows from being a Spirit-filled person. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Just put in there uh, Revelation chapter 19. That's all there. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, what this is saying is is that flowing from the Holy Spirit is a delight of God. Now, listen, when you delight in God, you don't judge people by what they can give you or by how much money they have, you don't judge them by what they wear or outward appearance. When you are delighting and satisfied in God, you don't need anything from people, and therefore you can be fair with people. Because they don't have anything you need. Jesus, when he becomes king, he won't be like any other world ruler that we've ever known. All world rulers are obliged to do what the wealthy want them to do so that they can stay in power. All world rulers, ultimately, whether conservative or liberal or or monarchy or anything, they always exploit the poor in one way or the other to make themselves rich. Or to keep themselves in power. But when Jesus comes, he will be so delighted in God, so satisfied in God as a king of kings and lord of lords, that his fairness will be straightforward. It will be absolute. And people will get no more or no less than what they deserve in his kingdom. You see, our world, people don't get equity or justice, right? Even if you're a poor person and you do something wrong, you don't have the means to get a defense to make sure you only get the the measure of condemnation that your action did wrong. You usually get far more than you deserve in sentencing. That's the way it's always been. The wealthy in our world certainly don't get what they deserve. They usually are able to afford a more lenient outcome. I can't imagine a world like this where, where, where true justice, not what Jesus sees with his eyes, not what he hears with his ears, he can't be hustled, he can't be manipulated, he can't be like, well, I'll give you this much money if you'll support this cause. No, Jesus will simply bring a world of justice so that everyone gets what they deserve. And certainly when he comes, he will judge the wicked and send them rightfully into final condemnation. And rightfully send them to the hell that they have earned. And he can't be changed. This is belted to his waist. It's tied into his loins. It's fastened into his life. It's an unstoppable course of his kingdom and the way he does kingliness. He can't be compromised. He can't be shifted. He's immutable in this quality of justice. This will bring a world. We just can't even imagine it. In fact, it's so unique, this perfect justice and equity. It's never been experienced in the world. And if we experienced it the moment we walked out of the church today without being prepared for it, we probably wouldn't like it because it's so uncommon what this is talking about. This is a world without tears. This is a world without pain. This is a world without unfairness of any kind or stripe. And you have never been to a church that's been fully equitable. You've never been in an institution that's been fully justice. You've never been in a, in a nation that has perfected justice. But this kingdom and this king will be just. Now listen, if you want to be just in your own life, If you want to be a person that's not a people pleaser, but a God pleaser, delight yourself in the Lord. Be delighted in him. If you want to be a person that doesn't envy the rich because of all of what they have and say, Oh, I wish I had it. I'm so jealous. I covet everything they have. Oh, they are so great. I think they're so great because look at all this stuff that they have. And I don't have it. And I just wish I did. And I don't feel complete without it. You want to treat the rich fairly and just be able to appreciate what they have but not need what they have? Listen, delight yourself in the Lord and you'll treat rich people with fairness. But if you're rich and you have plenty and your plate is full and the presents under your tree are abundant and you don't want to feel superior over and against the poor, you don't want to feel like you're better than other people because of what you wear or what you have, then you must delight yourself in the Lord to be able to treat the poor with fairness and compassion, not with hypocrisy and meanness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And then you can deal fairly with people in the church, out of the church. With people who are different than you. With people who are richer than you or poor. See, delighting in God brings a level ground for all of us. And we can be united no matter what we have or don't have. That's the world that Jesus is bringing And that's the world we're to taste before it comes. So Jesus will rule, will bring a kingdom, and he will be a king who is spirit-filled in his leadership. Secondly, who is God-delighting in his justice. But finally, who is relationship-reconciling in his peace. Or in other words, he brings peace to all the broken relationships of the world. Now, I want you to see this. Go to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. The wolf, it says about this world. You know, what's the day after every day look like? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fat and calf together and a little child shall lead them now you see what the picture he's trying to paint of this kingdom of jesus there's there's lions and lambs and leopards and goats and and a little baby's leading them verse 7 the cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And that's not like a rubber cobra. Amen? I still got some of you. All right. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Note the nature, even nature itself is being transformed in this world of Jesus. Even, even nature is at peace. Verse 10. In that day, the day after every day, the kingdom of Jesus day, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar and from Hamath and from uh, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You can put in your margin there next to Chapter 12, the sermon on the end of the world by Jesus, which he preaches in Matthew 24, chapters 24 and 25. He says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, in his sermon on the end of the world, he says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they were gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other and so everyone will come together from the four uh, corners of the of the earth the elect of god will come together and we can see please note please note that we can see that there's Jews and Gentiles in this millennial kingdom. It's not just for Israel. This is Jews and Gentiles. All of the elective people of God will reign with Jesus in this world on, it says, that day. And there will be peace. And there's several forms of reconciliation happening. In fact, everything we lost in the Garden of Eden is now restored to peace. Think about Adam and Eve. And when they took the forbidden fruit and think about all the separations that happened in their life, the first separation that happened to them was they were separated from God. It was theological, it was spiritual. They ran from God. They hid from God. That's always the sign of sin, isn't it? The sin of rebellion and sin is we're hiding from God. And they hid from God. They ran from God. And they they hid behind the bushes because they didn't want to know God anymore. They didn't want to be in fellowship with him anymore. And you remember what God said. Here's Adam behind a bush. Right? And here's what he hears. Adam, where are you? Remember That was freaky. I didn't know he'd do that. Now, God knew where Adam was, but what God was highlighting was, Adam, this is the first time that you and I have been separated in our fellowship. And when Jesus came into the world, and He says in John chapter 12, verse 32, If I am lifted up as a signal, if, 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 if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. When He dies on the cross, His resting place, when He dies... He restores human beings who are in rebellion to God and everybody who believes in Jesus just by simple belief. This theological relationship, this spiritual relationship with God is restored and made peaceful in Jesus. And ultimately, it is those who have responded to Jesus who will live in the kingdom of Jesus and experience the knowledge of God in completion. The whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. All this fellowship and love that we were meant for with God and in our relationship will be complete, completely manifested in this world. Jesus will rule by reconciling relationships and peace. But also note nature. It's an ecological reconciliation that's happening. You remember, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and they took the forbidden fruit, and what did God say to him when he, when, he, when he brought them together, and he gave them his judicial pronouncement? He said, "Cursed is the ground because of you, and I'm going to cause nature to work against you so that you have to sweat when you work. Nature's not going to be perfect. it's going to groan. It's going to cause you problems. There's going to be cosmic problems in your life with nature. And we all know that nature groans. Romans 8 says nature is groaning for its redemption because it's been groaning from the time Adam and Eve fell all the way to our own time. It groans in tornadoes, which we like to chase in Oklahoma. Amen. It groans in tsunamis and hurricanes. It groans with dead gum flies. There will be no flies in the millennial kingdom. Amen it groans but here we see that jesus will be reconciling even this ecological relationship between human beings and nature even a baby can play with a snake or stick its hand in a snake hole and be okay a snake is really just a pet lion and the lamb will be together. There will be peace and harmony ecologically. There'll be no more hurricanes or tsunamis. There'll be no more groaning of creation. Creation will be transformed and renewed by Jesus. But the other separation that happened was sociological, not just ecological and theological, but sociological. Because you see, Adam and Eve were hiding from themselves. And you remember that when they sinned, they blamed each other. Do you all remember that? Like God was like, Adam, where are you doing? Why did you take the forbidden fruit? And what did Adam say to God? Well, it was the woman you gave to me. She jacked me up. It was her fault. And at that moment, the human relationship and the community and the the human connection and love and affection for one another, freely given and freely offered, at that moment, because of sin, it was broken. And that's why all relationships are broken. That's why sociologically we're all whacked out and jacked up. And there's no place you can go to fully be safe from the sociological mess of this world, the mess of this sin. See, Jesus will come and he will bring a kingdom and he will bring sociological harmony so that Ephraim, the northern part of Israel, will no longer be jealous of Judah, the southern part. The north and the south will get together. The confederates and the union people will get together. The blacks and the whites will love one another. Jews and Gentiles will be fully united and Jesus will create a many-colored kingdom of unity and racial unity because Revelation 5 says he purchased racial unity and sociological. Logical wholeness at the price of his blood what a world what a world and when you're worshiping Jesus and thanking him for coming into this world you're worshiping him because you see in his birth and in the fulfillment of that first part of the prophecy he will fulfill the second part But the final separation that happened because of sin that is here fully made manifest and restored and reconciled in peace is a psychological separation. Adam and Eve separated from themselves. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know their identity. They didn't know who they were or where they came from. They, didn't, they suddenly were full of shame. They're covering themselves. They're hiding behind bushes. They can't deal with themselves transparently. The psychological brokenness of human beings is real. But here in this passage, Jesus will reconcile people with themselves As he reconciles us with ourselves, even now he gives us a new identity. Even now we have peace in Christ. I mean, isn't that phenomenal? I mean, Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone. Amen. I mean, now we know what Tiny Tim really meant, right? Tiny Tim was like, man, nature's going to be healed. People are going to be healed. Relationships are going to be healed. Jesus is awesome. That's what Tiny Tim meant. This is the King." Jesus is the king, and this is what it means to say he's king. He is coming to rule, and he will bring spirit-filled uh, leadership. He, he will bring God-delighting justice. He, he will bring uh, a reconciliation and peace to all relationships. Jesus will renew and reverse all of the curses that have come upon this world As a result of sin, but the only people who get to enjoy this kingdom, who fully enjoy this, are those who look up to Jesus, who see Him as the signal and the sign, who believe that Jesus is God's answer and solution to the problem of evil in the world. Do you believe? Because unbelievers are cast outside, unbelievers are found unrighteous, unbelievers are kicked out of this kingdom and thrown into a lake of fire. And there, the very opposite realities of what we just talked about will be there. No wisdom, no counsel, no light, no goodness. How should we respond this week to the coming kingdom and millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Isaiah chapter 12 tells us a few quick things, and it tells us how we should respond in our life today, this Christmas, to the coming reign and rule of King Jesus. He is the King, and he will bring all of these things to us. And so it says here, like a psalm, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, you will say in that day, and so you can say it today. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The first thing to do is to be comforted by God this week. Let him comfort you. In a world of insecurity and chaos, let the coming kingdom and the promise of it and the hope of it and the the Savior of it, let him comfort you today. Here's the second thing, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation, not my money or lack thereof, not my my, uh, reputation or what other people think of me. God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. Here's the second thing. How do I live in light of the coming king and the reality of Jesus being king is I trust and I will not be afraid. Even if the worst news should come, I am unafraid of it. I should be don't be afraid affliction pain will come we will weep The Bible says that a righteous man is unafraid of bad news. That doesn't mean that a righteous person likes bad news or takes pleasure in bad news, but it just says that a righteous person is unafraid of bad news because a righteous person knows King Jesus and says, Jesus will restore all things. I will not be anxious. I will not be worried. I will not be afraid. No matter what this world does, I won't be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid to send my kids to school. I'm not going to be afraid of what might happen. I will not be afraid because Jesus is coming back. And if the world should take my life, if the world should take everything from me, Jesus will bring it all back and then some with his kingdom. And I will be raised on the last day and I will rule and reign and I will judge the nations with them. And I got some nations picked out. Amen. I won't be afraid. You can't worship Christ at Christmas and say he's the coming Messiah and then be a person of fear. Here he comes. He will be the king. He is the king. Number one, be comforted. Number two, trust and don't be afraid. Number three, verse three. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Amen. Everybody say amen. Woo! I tell you what, man. I would go on that for another hour. Y'all, y'all in? My wife's not. She's taking over the kids over there. So she's. But. What we need to do is draw with joy from the wells of salvation. This this endless supply of peace and joy from the salvation of Christ. This endless supply I can constantly, I'll never run to the end. The well will never run dry of joy and peace as long as I draw from it. And so here this week, I want you to draw from the wells of salvation that Jesus was born into this world to give to you freely. Sinners saved by grace. Sinners forgiven by grace. Sinners who respond and are made right with God because Jesus makes them right on the cross. And you can draw from that well. Draw, draw. Everybody say draw. Draw, read, read scripture as if it's a well. Endless supply of joy. Draw, 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 pray. Pray. Pray without ceasing. Pray in your mind and in your heart, in your attitude. Pray with your words verbally. Pray, pray as you're driving down, down, down the road. Draw, draw, draw from those wells. Turn up the music. Bop the head. Draw. Joyfully draw from the wells of eternal salvation from God. Be happy in Him. Be content. Let His portion be more than enough for you. Draw with joy. Be comforted. Trust and don't be afraid. Draw from the wells of salvation. Here's the final thing. Verse 4. You will say in that day, and therefore you can say in this day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let his name be known in all the earth. Here's the fourth thing you do this week. Let his name be known. He is the king. And he offers peace to anybody who responds to him. He offers the peace to the weariest person, to the most frightened person who looks at this world and trembles, and say, "What's going to happen? What's going to happen? How will the world end?" Everybody's asking. Have you noticed this? Everybody's asking. How will the world end? And then, once it ends, will there be anything? Will there be any life after the end? Will there be a day after every day? Have you noticed this? There's movies about this. There's post-apocalyptic visions, and, and people are, are speculating, you know what I mean? What does the end of the world look like, and who lives after it? In some scenarios, it's zombies. And a few human beings on a barn, fighting them off. Zombies are everywhere, all the movies, even Brad Pitt's coming out with the zombie movie. Because people are, spent. well, maybe it'll be like that. Maybe a plague will go out. It'll end the world as we know it. And the day after every day will include zombies. Who knows? It's an interesting theory. Other theories, post-apocalyptic theories, are much more glorious. It's teenage girls marrying vampires after struggling with, should I marry the vampire or the wolf? Well, then this child, uh, this, this teenage girl then becomes half vampire, half human, and has a half vampire, half human baby, and they war against other vampires and sometimes get along with the wolves. <laughs> the world is wondering, what will the day after every day look like? What is the end of the world? But we all agree, do we not, that the world will end. Even a naturalist or a secularist or, or, or all these, they say, well, there's no day after every day. An asteroid or human pollution or a black hole is going to suck us up. As one scientist said on 2020, that wouldn't be fun. <laughs> and they say, we're doom and gloom. We're going to get swept up like a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Keep practicing that science. That's what you're good at. But we all know the world's gonna end. It's gonna end. It's in us, see, because everything that we have in life has a beginning and an end. Our dogs, our cats, people in our life, everybody has a limited time. Everything has an expiration date. Everything ends. And so we sense intuitively the world will end. But is there a day after every day? And Jesus' birth shows us that yes, there is a day after every day. And the day after every day doesn't have any zombies, they're in hell. It doesn't have vampires or wolves. Hell. It doesn't have teenagers who like them. Hell. The day after every day, is a day of the Holy Spirit and leadership. The day after every day is God delighting justice and equity between all people. The day after every day is peaceful relationships, a multicolored kingdom of people, Jews and Gentiles, a people purchased by the blood of Jesus from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And so I say rejoice and drink deeply from this fountain and don't be afraid and believe and look to the signal. The cross, the resurrection, Jesus our Lord, He is King. Let us pray. Jesus, I don't always believe. As fervently or as loud or as long as I preach sometimes in my life. I need grace. Because sometimes I refuse your comfort. And I go to other things to bring me comfort. And sometimes, God, I don't, I don't believe, I don't trust. But I, I'm more filled with fear than I am faith. And sometimes, God, even as a pastor... I run to the wells of the world to draw happiness. The limited, dried-up wells of this world, which can never give as much as they promise, I draw too much from them. Help me, God, to draw from your will. Help me, God. Help me, God, to bear witness to your name in all the world. Help me to desire the whole earth to know, Jesus, that you are good Sovereign, you are King of kings, Lord of lords. You are the Savior of sinners. You have compassion on the broken and on the oppressed. You set the captives free. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring liberty to those who are found in prison. God, help me to share that message with the world. And God, help us as a church to believe. Help us to be a preview of the really big show to come. Help us to practice and and to be a foretaste to anybody who knows us of this coming kingdom. May they taste something different than what they taste in the world. Heal us, be with us, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.